0: Hi, this is John Heminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church in Milanville, Pennsylvania. How do you become a child of God? Is salvation due to the family in which you were born, the church you attend, or the biblical doctrines you claim to believe? To put the question another way, is repentance from your sin necessary to enter heaven? Jesus himself tackled this issue in Luke 13, 1 through 9 And so this morning, we will examine what Christ had to say about repentance.
1: Welcome to the Beacon of Hope broadcast. It's good to be with you again today. I'm in Luke chapter 13. I'm going to be studying verses 1-9 to 9 on the subject of uh, repentance. Jesus Christ is going to deal with this issue. You know, I remember getting a magazine oh, uh, several years ago now from some group uh, that said that repentance is not necessary for salvation, that somehow repentance is a work and it's not um, essential for salvation. And, well, we'll see what Jesus has to say about that. So, before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the fact that we can uh, trust it. We thank you for what our Savior has to say, and we ask that you will help us to listen And uh, we pray that you would help folks to listen in on this and and hear what our Lord has said and believe him. Uh, For, Lord, it can make all the difference in their eternal destiny. So we pray for your grace and help in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you need to repent of your sins in order to be saved? or Do you nearly uh, need to uh, agree with the facts of the gospel? A lot of people rest their own salvation or the salvation of a loved one or friend on the fact that they believe in God. Uh, For instance, um, sometimes I have talked to a young person in our church, and they've just started a dating relationship, and one of the early questions I like to ask them is, uh, well, is your boyfriend or girlfriend a Christian? The Bible says that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So I ask them that question often. Is your boyfriend or girlfriend a Christian? And sometimes you get this response. Well, he says that he believes in God, well, is that enough? James, chapter two, verse eighteen. Uh, the apostle James, uh, one of actually Jesus' half brother, he said this: "You believe that there is one God; you do well. The, even the demons believe and tremble." He's being sarcastic there. He's saying if you're hanging your eternal destiny on the fact that you believe in God, he said the devil believes in God. Matter of fact, the demons tremble before God. I don't know if you've ever done that, but but James says the demons do. So just believing in God is not enough to save someone. So let's allow our, our Savior to, to speak to this issue. Jesus addresses the need for repentance if one is going to be saved in the backdrop of two incidents that had happened recently in his time uh, to some within the nation of Israel. Then he tells a parable that also deals with the vital issue of the limited time that you have to repent. So here's the main outline. First of all is Incident 1, and it's a, a situation that Pilate had uh, executed some Jewish worshipers, evidently in the temple itself. Uh, that would be Pontius Pilate, those of you that would know that name. would uh, be the same one. Incident 2 is 18 tragic deaths that happened at the fall of a tower by the name of the Tower of Siloam. And then the parable... Uh, is the third uh, major uh, division in this in these nine verses. So let's talk about incident number one, this blasphemous execution of some Jewish people. In verses one to three, it says, There were present at that season some who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now what happened? It seems upon reading multiple sources um, when I studied this, that, that some rebellious Jews from Galilee did something to anger Pontius Pilate, the ruling Roman authority. Luke chapter 23 and verse 12 records that for a time, Herod and Pilate were hostile toward each other. Herod was the ruler in the region of Galilee. And it is at least possible that this event had something to do with why Herod and Pilate did not get along. The Galileans were under Herod's dominion, but when they acted out in some way that alarmed or angered Pilate, he killed them while worshiping in the temple. Now, since Luke mentions that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices, this would imply that they were killed in the sacrificial area of the temple—a spot, a whole courtyard, and area around it. Which was only uh, allowed, uh, Jewish uh, believers in, in the God of Israel were the only ones allowed in there. Matter of fact, only men were allowed there. And so, the, uh, actually, the, the rule for the temple was that if a Gentile or even a woman came into that area, they, could, they would be executed. Thus to the Jews of Jesus' day, Pilate's assault and execution of Jewish men in the spot where they were sacrificing to God would have been a horrific, blasphemous insult to God and his people. It explains a little bit of why Pilate was so afraid when, a short time later when Jesus is brought before him and he's trying to get him released. He's trying to release him. He was afraid of angering the crowd because he already was on bad terms with the nation of Israel probably over this event and, and some others we, we know from history as well. So what happens? There's this there's this awful execution of a number of people. So now what, what's assumed by this? Well, verse 2, Jesus is hitting that. He says, do you suppose that these Galileans, the ones who were executed, were were sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? You see, the common Jewish person of Jesus' day understood and believed that God was in control of all things, which is correct. However, based upon that fact, they came to reason that if anything horrific or tragic happened to you at your death, it was evidence that God had judged you for some sin. Thus, for many in Christ's day, the humiliating death of the Galileans meant that they must have done something evil to come under God's wrath. Now think how this mentality affects one's view of the cross. It's why even today many people struggle with, uh, especially from the from the Jewish uh, mindset. They struggle with how could Jesus be the Messiah and die such a horrific death? It was it, this was not uh, only assumed uh, upon one's death. In John chapter nine, in verses one to three, it says, "Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi." Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So again, here's another very difficult situation, a man who's born blind. And what was the immediate assumption, even of Jesus' own disciples? It just shows you how this was a common mentality of the day. And that is, okay, somebody must have sinned for him to have this terrible birth defect. Was it him? Was it his parents? Again, they're even assuming the man somehow sinned in his mother's womb. If, if, he, if he was sinned, if he was born blind because of his own sin. And Jesus' answer is interesting. Jesus answered, neither has this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So the Lord is saying, no, fellas, it's, it, the purpose is, is beyond what you can understand. You know, we sometimes come up with our own little views of God from a very um, uh, short-sighted uh, vantage point. And we somehow think that God is in our little box. He's not. And to, to think that we understand his ways, we really don't. And so it was a wrong assumption that Jesus is dealing with here. Do you think that, the, that because these guys died such a horrific death in the temple while they were sacrificing, does that mean somehow that they were worse than everybody else in Galilee? That's what Jesus is asking. So we see then the uh, the incident, then we see what, what was assumed from the incident. So what's the truth? What's going on here? Verse 3, I tell you, this is Jesus talking again. No, your assumptions are wrong, is what he's saying. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what does it mean to repent? Well, um, basically the idea is is religious and ethical change. You change the way you think, which changes the way you act. It is really to turn around. Um, just an example of repentance. Um, let's say that that I'm in an airport and uh, uh, I, I'm going to get on a flight, and and I have on my ticket. It's um, it's at, at Concourse B, and it's a Terminal uh, 16. So I go to Concourse B, and I go to Terminal 16. And I'm sitting there for several minutes. Uh, that was on my ticket, but I didn't realize that for some reason um, the airport changed from what was was printed on my ticket, the uh, the location where I was going to get on to a different a different terminal. Now I'm sitting there for several minutes. I'm, maybe I'm sitting down. I'm reading my my uh, book or, or whatever I'm doing, and all of a sudden I look up and uh, I notice. You know, the the plane that that I'm intending to board is not headed. We'll say toward toward Florida. It's going to head toward South Carolina. Now, I just have a had a change of how I was thinking. I I now realize I'm in the wrong terminal. I'm looking around. It's it's the one that's on my ticket. But what's on the board? Now that's the present going on right now. Is is it's saying North Carolina? And I may go up and I may talk to the the person at the desk and just to make sure what's going on, uh, or I may go out into one of the into the lobby and look around at the monitors and and see where my flight is 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 now going out of, but. When I repent is when I see it differently. I I, I had the view that I was in the right terminal. Now I see it differently and it changes the way I act. Now I'm going to leave that wrong terminal and go to the right one. So when someone repents for salvation, they understand I'm on the wrong road. I'm not headed toward heaven. I may have thought I was headed toward heaven. I may have had these preconceived ideas that I was headed toward heaven, but they come to realize that they're on the wrong road. And so what do you do? When you realize that you're on the wrong road, if you genuinely are believing in Christ, want to go to heaven, you're going you're gonna to switch course. You're going to change your actions. You're going to repent. Now, so what does it mean to repent? It's the idea of, of turning around. Uh, it's to see your sin and for the evil that it is in God's sight, and therefore, instead of desiring and harboring your sin, you turn from it and renounce it as evil before God. Repentance involves both a work of God, by the way, and your own responsibility. Kind of interesting. I think sometimes we emphasize one and not the other. Does repentance um, uh, come from the Lord? Well, yes. Actually, the Lord does help us and work in our lives so that we will repent. In 2 Timothy chapter two, I'm reading verse twenty-five and twenty-six. He says, "In humility." correcting those who are in opposition, opposition to the truth and the gospel, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. Isn't that interesting? If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him uh, to do his will. You see, when when someone is living in rebellion against God and, uh, and opposing the truth of the gospel, they are, I don't think we realize how much they anger God. And if you're uh, living a life of, of knowing rebellion against God, I, I, I just warn you as, as, as lovingly as I can, uh, you don't realize how dangerous of a position you're in. And may God grant you repentance. May God work in your life so you'll see it, so that he'll wake you up. Hey, I'm in the wrong terminal. Hey, I've got to get, I'm on the wrong road. I need to get off of this road that I'm on. Sometimes it takes suffering. Sometimes it, it takes uh, um, uh, humiliation. When, when I, I was uh, uh, talking to some people just recently, and it, to, for them, repentance came as a result of suffering. Uh, a great calamity came. Many times that happens in people's lives. Uh, again, sometimes it's, it's being caught in evil, And uh, the humiliation that comes from that, that causes a person, I don't know if some of you may have heard of, of, um, I think it's called Prison Fellowship, Chuck Colson was was in the Watergate um, scandal and uh, ended up going to jail for some time. Worked under uh, President Richard Nixon, and um, uh, due to all the the wrongdoing that was going on, uh, Colson was one of the ones that went to jail. But as a result of that humiliation and that, uh, that uh, uh, time of, of judgment in his life, Chuck Colson came to know Christ as Savior and then actually started a prison ministry that has gone across the world. So many times God uses difficulties, even humiliating circumstances, to draw people to himself. That's, that is a, 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 the grace of God really working in your life. In Acts chapter 26, though, and verse 19 and 20, we see that repentance absolutely is necessary for salvation. In this particular passage, the Apostle Paul was describing his ministry to a man by the name of Agrippa, King Agrippa. He was a ruler. Paul was in prison at this time for his faith. And King Agrippa was one of the ones who was going to hear his case and try to see what um, he would recommend to be done. And so Paul is trying to summarize to King Agrippa uh, what he has been teaching, what he believes and has been teaching across the world. Here's what he says. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He's talking about the time when he was converted to Christ, when Christ appeared to him but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent. That's his description of salvation. Now part of it, he says that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. He's saying that that people need to turn away from their sin and turn to God. So repentance is a work of God. And if God's working in your life, even through very difficult circumstances that you may be under, even maybe humiliating circumstances, maybe you've just uh, uh, woken up this morning and and you have failed God and other people uh, just last night even, I will tell you that if, if God is working in your heart to repent and to turn from your sin, uh, you now have the responsibility, okay, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to listen? Or am I going to harden my heart and go on in unbelief? D.L. Moody was talking about the fact that, and he's exactly right, that salvation is instantaneous. Let me just say, what he. let me just give you kind of what he said here. He said, I admit that a man may be converted so that he cannot tell when he crossed the line between death and life. He's saying that there are certain people that maybe can't identify exactly when it was that they asked christ to save them and they were truly born again but i also believe a man may be a thief one moment and a saint the next you know what he's saying he's saying god can take a person who has just failed miserably and and but is under conviction of his or her sin and this person is sick of of sin and i, I don't want to live that way any longer and i want to turn to jesus god will hear that prayer And God will change that person and save them. It doesn't mean they won't have consequences. What it does mean is that their soul can be saved. You think about the thief on the cross. Why is he dying there? He's dying for crimes that he's committed. And he realizes it. He says to the other thief, he says, we're getting what we deserve. This man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. He says, Lord, would you remember me? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, a person can be a thief one moment and a saint the next. Uh, uh, Moody went on, he said, I believe a man may be as vile as hell itself one moment and be saved the next. And that is true. God can save the most miserable sinner. He can turn a person around. So I had that question when I was uh, looking at this passage. Um, What does it mean to repent? It means to see that you're, you're on the wrong road, that you're doing the wrong things, and to renounce that. To turn away from that and to turn to what doing what is right. Turn to God. Remember, it's repent, turn to God. And, and the, the works that befit repentance are evidence that you're serious. It means, no, I'm not just playing a game. I'm not just, just going through the motions in order to try to act like and, and get out of trouble, so as it were. But what does it also mean when Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what does he mean to perish? Well, there are actually two uh, possible fulfillments of this. First of all, as an individual, each of the people Jesus spoke to needed to repent of their sins, and that's the primary meaning here. He's saying, I tell you, this, this group of people, he's telling them now as a group, but as individuals, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Every one of you will perish unless you repent it shows us that we are not good enough to get to heaven in our own on our own works we're not every one of us needs to repent of being a rebel against god every one of us every one of us needs to repent of of the fact that we are not righteous people that that we are sinners before a holy god that we don't even come close to fulfilling his holy commandments and we need to admit that acknowledge that before the lord and ask him to forgive us. If you're trying to earn your way to heaven, you're in the wrong terminal. If you are trying to be good enough to uh, merit go, uh, eternal life, I'm just telling you this you're on the wrong road. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it, salvation, is the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. Salvation is not on the basis of your works or mine. Our works should show that we're truly repentant, but they are not what saves us. It is just the evidence that we're saved. In 1 John chapter 5, and verse 11 and 12, he says, and This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Someone says, well, what about the person that's very good and they're very moral and they're very upright and they're a great neighbor, but they just don't know Jesus? They're on the wrong road. Jesus said himself, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Well, here's a person they never heard the name of Jesus. They need to repent or perish. That's what Jesus said. You need to repent or perish. It's true individually. Can I say it's also true nationally? Because uh, most of the people in the, in the nation, Jesus is living, is uh, a Jewish man in the nation of Israel. Most of the people in the nation at large did not heed Christ's warning to repent of their sins. And because of their ultimate rejection of Christ himself, Jesus warned of a similar fate to the nation itself. Consider as he is carrying his cross toward Calvary, and I'm not sure if this is before or after. Um, remember, uh, Simon the Cyrenian carried Christ's cross for him. There's some women friends of Christ who are along that terrible path that Jesus now is going up toward Calvary, and they're they're weeping and mourning over what they see happening to Christ. Here's what Jesus said to them. It's, it, it's found in Luke chapter 23, verse 28 down to verse 30. But Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. You see, the nation of Israel um, and about a generation after Christ's crucifixion was wiped out by the Romans in 70 A.D. And they ceased to be a nation until, in God's grace, um, in 1948, Israel was reestablished in their land. And what a wonderful day that was. Uh, but what an awful, awful suffering the nation of Israel went through um, in those, oh, almost 1,900 years um, around the death of Christ until the rebirth of the nation. And may I say that as Americans, and I, I am a patriotic American, I love our country, we have been the recipients. Let me, let me, let me actually read you something that was uh, spoken, uh, written by one of our former presidents. We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved the many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power, as no other nation has ever grown but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. We have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. If you didn't figure it out, that was Abraham Lincoln in April 30, 1863, a proclamation for a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. Oh, we had a Christian heritage in our country, and we are turning our backs steadily on that heritage. And I pray that God will deliver us from the path that we're on. I pray that we as a people we repent of turning away from him we've taken god away from our schools and our schools have 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 gone down academically morally in so many ways we've taken god out of our uh, much acknowledgement in our government and, and and i don't think there's hardly a person in in our country that would deny that there is great corruption in washington dc We have taken God out of so many areas of our lives, and we wonder why there is such confusion and disunity and anger and hostility in our country. The judgment of God is real. And as a people, we need to turn from our unrighteous ways and and go back into the uh, ways of God. In Isaiah chapter 5, there is a parable that God gave to the nation of Israel. And it's found in verses 1 to 7 of of Isaiah's book. And it's a parable comparing the nation to a vineyard. Listen to what he says. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a winepress in it. He expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Let me stop there for just a second. The well-beloved is the reference to God himself. And God is the one that planted the nation of Israel. You say, well, how do we know this? Let's keep reading. And now, own inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me, God speaking, and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes. And God is saying to his nation, when I blessed you so much, and certainly he did the nation of Israel. You think of, of the great rise to power of David and Solomon and the great glories that God gave his people and the land that he gave them, that he, he described as flowing with milk and honey, a, a great place to live, a wonderful a heritage, giving them the word of God. But he said, and Isaiah the prophet, one of their greatest prophets, is, is, is challenging the people and warning the people that God has been so good to us, but what have we given back? Boy, do these words not ring true for us in the United States today? What have we given back to him? He goes on, and now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, okay, he says, and now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burnt, and break down its wall. And it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It's the nation of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. The, uh, Judah was the specific, uh, the nation of Israel had divided in two, and Judah was the, was the southern kingdom of those two. He looked for justice, speaking of God, he looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Certainly God says to individuals, and he says to a nation, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now there was a second incident that happened, that Jesus, uh, in Jesus' day, that he's going to refer to next. We're Back in Luke chapter 13, I'm reading in verse 4 and 5. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what happened here? We know there was a pool of water in a section of Jerusalem called the Pool of Siloam. Evidently, there was a tower somewhere above the pool that had a collapse. When that tower collapsed, 18 people died. So what was assumed again was that if something horrific like that happened to someone, they must have been a sinner, that God was somehow angry with them and allowed this awful death. Now, do we struggle sometimes with this idea even today? Remember just a few weeks ago, talking to an individual, and, and he was saying that thing to me. He was saying, well, what is God, you know, why is God so, um, I don't know what I've done to deserve what I'm going through. And he was talking about some very deep trials in his life. Well, the man didn't know the Lord yet. And so um, I told him, I don't think that God is angry with you. I, I really think that God is is reaching out to you. He's dialing your number. And he said, you're not just telling me that. I said, no, I don't. I, I said, I don't think you know Christ yet. And the Lord is is trying to wake you up to the, the fact that you need him. And God was doing that, in fact. It's very interesting that the man has come to Christ since then. And uh, it's what a wonderful blessing. Uh, but God was using turmoil and trouble in his life to call him to the need for salvation, to something far more important, the need to repent and turn to God for salvation. So we see what's happened. These 18 people died. What's assumed, again, by many in Jesus' generation was they must have done something to make God angry with them. But what's the truth in the matter? Well, calamity does not always indicate God's wrath. A violent death does not always indicate God's wrath. You think of of examples in the scriptures themselves. And these were examples, several of them, that they should have known. Abel, the very first... Um, martyr in the scriptures was Adam and Eve's second son, murdered by his brother, the older brother, Cain, over the issue of Cain was angry with Abel, jealous of him because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and he did not accept Cain's. Did Abel do anything to deserve that? No. He was murdered. It was a violent death. God wasn't angry with him. There's a man by the name of Naboth. You'd find him in the book of First of Kings. And Naboth had a vineyard um, that was outside of of the palace of the northern kingdom of Israel. A wicked king by the name of Ahab was there, and Ahab uh, made a made a um, a fair offer to his subject uh, Naboth. He said, "I'd like to buy your vineyard. I'll, I'll give you the worth of it in money. I'll leave, or I'll give you a better vineyard." But Ahab liked the location because it was right near his palace. Now there was a rule in Israel that you kept the property in your own family and it was to be passed down from generation to generation. And so Naboth, wanting to observe that, said I can't sell you my vineyard. I'm going to I'm going to hang on to it for my family. As a result of that, Ahab goes off and pouts. Literally, the king of Israel pouting, his wicked wife Jezebel comes in, says, "Why are you upset?" Ahab tells her the story, and Jezebel says, "I'll get you his vineyard." And Jezebel goes out writes some letters in the king's name, signs them with his ring to have false witnesses rise up, say that, that Naboth blasphemed God and the king and take him out and his sons and stone them to death. Naboth is executed so that Ahab can take a vineyard. Did Naboth do anything wrong? Absolutely not. He was actually being loyal to the Lord, but he was murdered. Some examples that would, uh, uh, would be playing out in the New Testament era would be John the Baptist, for one. John the Baptist is a was a martyr king uh, uh, herod uh, uh, not the one that was trying to kill christ but one of his descendants uh tried to and 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 actually executed john the baptist had his head chopped off because john the baptist spoke the truth to him the apostle peter we know that jesus predicted that he would die a violent death and he did the apostle paul we know that he died a violent death M- both of them martyrs for christ and Jesus Christ Himself would die on the cross—an extremely horrific, violent death. So we can't say that calamity uh, it indicates God's wrath. That was the—that was the judgment that Job's friends had. They—they they figured because Job's all these terrible things have happened. I mean, and and terrible things had happened to Job. He lost all of his possessions. He lost his health. He ten of his children—all ten of his children died and a same disaster. And so Job's friends come to him with the whole thought process. You've done something to anger God. And Job, we're going to try to help you find out what that is and repent of it so God won't be so angry with you and will treat you better. That was wrong. It was completely wrong. Calamity does not always indicate God's wrath. We need to remember that this life is a blink of an eye compared to eternity. And sometimes we just focus so much on the few years that we have here on earth, not realizing that what really matters is when we leave this earth. Psalm 36 and verse 6 says this about the Lord. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Do you believe that? That's, that's true. God's righteousness is like, you think of the Rocky Mountains. The idea is it's just vast. We have When someone says God wasn't fair, God wasn't right, you have no idea what you're talking about. God's righteousness is like the great mountains. Then he says this, your judgments, your decisions are a great deep. Think of the ocean. Think of trying to get to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, The marina trench is so vast and deep that you you could not uh, dive down there without special equipment that would be um, able to observe pressures that would, would crush us normally. To to think about sounding out and understanding all the depths of God's decisions. He's saying we can't do it. Your judgments are a great deep. O oh Lord, you preserve man and beast. God's decisions on who lives, who dies, what happens in this situation, what happens in that. We We're not privy to why he does what he does. We do know this. His purposes go way beyond what happens right now. And it's wrong to assume God is angry when tragedy hits. Then we also need to realize that all need to repent or face God's wrath. That was Christ's point. I tell you, no, don't don't think that these people had to be terrible people because of what happened to them. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is saying everyone needs to repent. So we have incident one when Pilate had murdered some people and had them executed right where they were offering sacrifice in the temple. We have, we have incident two, these people that died from what we might call a natural disaster, the falling of the Tower of Siloam. But now Jesus is still illustrating repentance with a parable. And we call it the parable of the unfruitful fig tree. It's found in verses 6 to 9. He says, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why, you, why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if, the, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. Now, what does this parable mean and why is it set in this, in this context of repentance? Well, let's talk about first of all the master. Who would the master represent in the parable? I, I think it's pretty obvious that the master represents the Lord. Just like, and, and again, many of these Jewish people might be familiar with that parable in Isaiah chapter five that was written seven hundred years before Christ about the about the the Lord planting Israel like a like a a, a tree or a vine, excuse me, a vine in a vine in a, in a vineyard and making a beautiful wall around and everything, and then a giving forth wild grapes instead of good grapes. So this idea that the master has planted something would would make sense. He represents God here. So God notice plants this tree. Now who does the tree represent? And I would say that the tree represents you and I. You and I who are alive on this earth. Now he placed the tree in a good spot. So what picture does comes to your mind about the about the about the master here. Again, he has been good. He he has he has put you in a good spot. There is cultivation there. Rather than just this tree just springing up from a fig that randomly falls to the ground and rots into the soil and then this the, the that little seedling you know gets gets down enough that it's able to survive and then produces the, the fig tree. That's not what happens here. He says a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. So he planted him there. There's cultivation there. There's protection there because it's inside a vineyard. He's not outside where it's got to fight the weeds growing around it. He's got a caretaker in that vineyard. You can expect that this fig tree has the weeds pulled out so it can thrive. There's also nurturing there. Rather than having to hang on just to survive in times of drought, you can expect that when the rains did not fall consistently, this fig tree received water from the caretaker. So too, when fig trees growing up in the wild had to survive on what naturally happened around them, and maybe shriveled for times, maybe even died, this fig tree got special help. You can tell that the master has placed this tree in a in a in a spot of advantage. So, how would this apply to Jesus' audience? Well, as as um, Jewish people, they were given much more light through the access that they had to the word of God, than all the rest of the world. Remember, the, the Ten Commandments were written to them. The, the Old Testament scriptures were in their possession. As such, God rightly expected more from them than from other people groups of the world. In Luke chapter 12, it's right nearby, verse 47 and 48, Jesus said this, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with with, with, with many stripes, but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given from him, will much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. With privilege comes responsibility. So the master had expectations that this tree would bear fruit. So how would this apply to you? Well, may I say, if you're listening to my voice today, in all probability, you too are very blessed. Have not, each of us, living especially in this country, we have much access to the gospel. We've been given much light and much opportunity to grow in the grace of the Lord and to come to know who the true God is. For instance, if you want to, you can turn a radio station. Now, this is a normal radio station, talk radio. But there are complete radio stations dedicated to only Christian broadcasting. And I can find one almost everywhere I drive. If you, if you can't um, maybe necessarily find it on your car radio, there you can also, many of you have uh, access to internet or through your cell phone. If people walk, and many times they have Bibles there, now you can also invest more and get get you can get multiple translations. You can there are there is all kinds of access on the internet. You could literally you could speak to your phone and ask for a certain passage of scripture, and I've done this, and it'll it'll read it for you. That's how much access we have to the Word of God. So let me ask you this question: What have you done with the blessings that you have from God? What have you done with your opportunities? Some of you may have grown up in, in, a, in a pretty rough home. Maybe your parents split up. Maybe it was very difficult. Um, there's a, we, we know that there are many people that have experienced uh, verbal abuse. There are many that experience uh, physical abuse, even sexual abuse. These are serious things. But we have more light than almost any country on the earth as far as opportunity, if we want to, to hear from God. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus was talking about some of the cities where he did the mo- most of his miracles. Here's what he says I'm in verse 20 down to verse 23. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So some of the places where he did mo- many of his greatest miracles, many in those cities did not turn to him, did not acknowledge him as their Messiah, did not turn from their sin. Now, here's what Jesus says to them. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's one of the cities. Woe to you, Bethsaida. There's another. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. These were two cities that had been wiped out by God's judgment and by other nations years before. Jesus is saying, if those people had access to the truth that you've had access to, to seeing the miracles that I performed, they would have responded better than you did. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, there's a third city where Jesus did many of his miracles, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now think about this. Many times we we look at someone who's destroyed his or her life with drugs or alcohol or some kind of of immoral behavior. Uh, Maybe it was cheating, maybe it was embezzlement, or whatever it may be. Maybe it was child pornography that this person got hooked on. And we, we, we see them in prison or we see them humiliated in the public, and, and we think to ourselves, wow, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I'm not like that person. But the reality what Jesus is telling these people in his day is when you have more light, when you actually have more access to the truth, and you despise it, you spit on it, you walk away from it, And you take all that God has been good to you and all that he's trying to share with you and you throw it out the window and go out and live your own life. He's saying it is more tolerable for the person that didn't know and lived a wicked, godless life than the person that took by truth and just threw it out. Even though they may not do the same crimes that someone else has done. Now the master had expectations for this tree. Uh, so what did the master expect from the tree planted? Well, again, in verse 6, a certain man came had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it. He expected fruit. Well, what would God expect from us? Well, he would expect, first of all, repentance for our sins against him. He would expect heartfelt love and praise. He'd expect us to be unashamed of him, to be a witness for his glory, to seek him daily in prayer, in His Word, He expects willing service from us. Do you think that the Master who who planted this tree that His expectations were in some way uh, unreasonable? No, He planted the fig tree to bear figs. Are God's expectations for us unreasonable? Absolutely not. That we would worship Him and love Him for the sacrifice of His Son, so that we could be saved. But when, when a person knows that Jesus laid down his life for him and and, and, and deliberately goes out and walks away from that sacrifice saying, nope, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I want to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. I really don't want to follow your rules, God. I really don't want to obey you. I want to live my life for myself. And, and so my wild oats, knowing that Jesus would have to pay for every sin that, that you've, you've committed. Basically spitting in the Lord's face. Do you not understand what that means? How that angers a holy God? Clearly the tree didn't meet the master's expectations. Instead of bearing tr- fruit, the tree was completely barren. And some of you who grew up with God's truth, who actually heard God's truth, have rebelled against his rules. You've chosen to walk with God's enemies instead of instead of those who are his servants. You've, you've mocked his truth. Sometimes you've even slandered his own children. You've cursed even God's name and despised Christ's sacrifice for you. What is Jesus saying? That God Almighty is thinking about such a wicked rebel. Why does it use up the ground? Those are Jesus' words. Why does it use up the ground? Let me paraphrase it for you. Why is this person still alive? Why is he or she taking up space on my earth? I'm giving this person every breath he or she is breathing. I'm I'm helping this this thing make a man well. I'm helping this man, giving him the mental faculties, and what's he doing? He's using the mind that I gave him to curse me. He's using the body that I gave him to 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 glorify himself or to or to, to, to seek his own uh, immoral ways. He's he's proud, he's cocky. He just thinks that I should just put up with this. The master is growing frustrated with this tree. And may I say, and just as lovingly as I can, God may be growing frustrated with some of you that are listening to me this morning. He may be frustrated with you. And it is a fearful thing, the scripture says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Cut it down. That's what, the, that's what this master is saying. Why does it take up the ground? Why is it using up the ground in my vineyard? So the master is actually not only going frustrated with the tree, but he is suggesting destroying the tree. Why am I going to destroy it? Because it's not producing any fruit. This shows genuine disgust that God has for those who take his blessings and give him nothing in return. Remember, this is coming from the lips of Christ. So what are you giving back to God? Here's, here's something that the psalmist wrote, Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? God's been so good to me. What can I give him back? One of the things he said when he went on there is, I'll, I'll praise you and I'll take the cup of salvation, call upon the name of the Lord. Oh, some of you need to do that. God is, has been good to you. He's, he's been merciful to you. He's spared your life. Many years ago as the story is told a devout king was disturbed by the ingratitude of his royal court so he prepared a large banquet for them and when the king and his royal guests were seated by prearrangement of the king a beggar shuffled into the hall he sat down at the king's table gorged himself with food without saying a word he then got up and left the room the other guests were furious and ask permission to seize the tramp and tear him limb from limb for his ingratitude. Well, the king has expected that reaction. Now he replied, That beggar has done only once to an earthly king what each of you does three times a day to God. You sit there at the table and eat until you are satisfied, then you walk away without even recognizing or expressing one word of thanks to him. How sad it is when people who say they name, they know the and 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 love the Lord can't even find the courage to thank God for their food in public. How sad that is. What the master is saying is not only this tree not producing fruit, it's actually doing more harm than good. The idea of of using up the ground literally means in relation to the soil it that it's it's, it's actually making that area of the of the, of the of the vineyard or the garden. It's making it barren. It actually is, is doing more harm than good. The tree was not only fruitless, it was taking the nutrients out of the soil and taking up space that could be rightfully given to a better tree. It was doing more harm than good. Now, only God can determine this. And again, he can even use the, acts, the evil acts of wicked people to work good in this world. But what a tragic and terrifying statement. And I ask you to look in your own heart in life. Would God say, you've taken my blessings, you've done nothing with them. You've never turned to me, you've never repented, you've never acknowledged me as your Lord and Savior. Never turn from your sin and let me change your life. Although you knew what you should do. Now there's something else. I want you to notice that the keeper of the vineyard interceded for for more time for the tree, it says. But he answered, and this the he there is evidently a worker in the vineyard. He answered and said to him, "Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it." So you can see the picture. Here's a guy and he's, he works for the master in in that vineyard. And so he says, "Well, sir, instead of just cutting it down this year, why don't why didn't you let me try one more time? Why don't you let me?" Um, and I. I I personally think that the keeper of the vineyard very well could picture another Christian, a, a genuine Christian person who's interceding on behalf of this unfruitful person, on this, of this unbeliever, this rebel. And may I say that some of you may still be on this earth because you have a mother, a father, a brother or sister, a cousin, someone, an aunt, an uncle, someone who is interceding to God on your behalf, you say, "Could it make that much?" Yeah, yeah, it really can, because the the good thing is they can't see all that you're doing against God. If they saw all that you were doing against God, they'd have a hard time um, doing else but just 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 begging with tears that, that your your life be spared. But the reality is, you very well may have someone. Who has been? Who has done the same thing that this keeper of the vineyard was doing uh, for uh, to the master? And that is, Lord, would you give him a little more time? And believe me, there are people on my prayer list, people that I care about, that we're praying exactly that that thing. Because with all the blessings they've thrown, they've thrown it. There, but I want you to notice, Jesus mentions there's a limited time given to this tree. It's not okay. We're just going to spare him. He says this, and if it bears fruit well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. And basically, in this case, he gave him a year. But the t- the point is, the time was limited. We are not told the master's decision, but we are told that it, that at least there was a plea for more time. So let me just wrap this up by saying you have you you have no right to assume God's mind as to why people die or what happens. Christ is clear on that. And he tells us all that we need to repent of our sins or perish, that ingratitude and fruitlessness are disgusting to the Lord. The intercession of others makes a difference. And can I just say to you, maybe you're a believer and you are genuinely saved. Are you interceding for those around you that need God's mercy? Now, God's decision is uncertain here, and time is limited. Jesus was warning them, and he warns us today, repent or you will all likewise
0: perish. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you would like to see the original video sermons of the series, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. Under the video tab, there's a separate playlist for the Messages of Christ series. If you know someone who is shut in or otherwise unable to attend church in person, we live stream our services weekly. You can look for that service to be streaming at approximately 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. If any of you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page as well. Just look for a radio bold icon on our feed. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.